Hi Greg, welcome to Melted Stone Podcast. Thank you very much, Jim. Pleasure to be with you today. The pleasure is actually all mine, Greg, um, as I've been a long-time listener to your podcast, LegalizeFreedom.com. But before we get into that, would you mind giving me a general summary of your background as a journalist and in particular your interest in music? Well, for me, the, the music thing was there from an early age. Uh, it's the usual arc that people go through. You know, generally you hit your teenage years at some point and you certainly my generation anyway I'm roughly the same age as you uh you know you just you hear music on tv radio and I don't know why it is I think it becomes part of forming your identity doesn't it which is something you begin to think about when you're a teenager so I just got into music you know back in the early 80s and it quickly became more than an average interest and you know eventually I ended up playing music and you know, doing a radio show and I wrote about music for many, many years. You know, that was my profession for a long time. Mm. So it just went from a normal teenage interest and then just mushroomed rapidly into uh, something of an obsession. And I, still, it's, um, it's extremely important to me. Uh, it's just that as things stand today, I don't make a living from music anymore. And that's really no big surprise to anybody out there who's had any contact with the industry, you know, given how things have changed, mm. particularly, particularly since the advent of the uh, internet. And as a child of the 80s myself, um, what kind of bands were you into? What kind of genre? Was it synth pop, goth? <laughs> oh, there was a couple of the big yeah. things around then, wasn't it? And the new romantic thing. Well, mm. I, I, no, it was for me, it was, it was always heavy metal, but I did make a couple of stabs in the dark you know that weren't very fruitful trying to find out what sort of music I liked because generally speaking you had music on the radio you know radio one back then that was the chart rundown all the popular stuff and you would hear you had top of the pops on tv and there weren't that you know there's a lot of radio stations but not as many outlets as you have now so I remember buying seven inch singles I got one by Duran Duran I got one by Adam and the Ants. I got one by, which was actually really good, by a group probably completely forgotten now called Temple Tudor. Swords of a Thousand Men was the song. That was great. Yeah, great but, but, but they were kind of, you know, looking around for something. And then I saw this uh, LP, actually, I remember quite, it was three ninety nine. That was the price for a new album back then. And uh, it was uh, Ace of Spades by Motorhead. And I looked at the, it had a picture of the band on the cover, and they looked like, I don't know, a cross between cowboys and bikers or something. It was just a re- it was a, such a cool look. And I just thought, I've got something in common with these guys. I don't know what it is, but they just looked so, just like real Grebo look, you know. Mm. So I bought it purely on spec. And, of course, it turned out to be just what I was looking for. Yeah, I remember, um, as I said, I grew up in the 80s myself. And, and there was a kind of a split, I suppose, between what you would maybe describe mainstream pop music, the synth pop bands, uh, you know, the, the, the equivalent of the X Factor offering these days. And then there was the more um, fringe music offerings of the day, which heavy metal would, would probably have fitted that description more, more than anything else. Maybe heavy metal and goth uh, would have been regarded as the dark arts and, and, and people who got into them were a little bit unhinged maybe, or they were... Uh, unconventional at best. Is that something that appealed to you as as a as a teenager? That you know that there was this alternative path to mainstream culture that was uh, intriguing, enticing. 
Yeah, ultimately, I mean, I think it was some people gravitated towards certain scenes or certain genres because of the look, um, you know, because some of it, like the new romantic thing, for example, overlapped with fashion for a while. And, but for me, it was, unlike most people, you know, if not all the people I've ever met who were genuinely into, into metal music, it was about the music. Now, some of them got very much into the look, you know, particularly in the 80s, it was, you know, denim and leather, badges, patches, chains, studs, all the rest of it. I didn't really go for that, but the point was it was about the music. But this um, outsider thing that it had going for it, for me, that was just like a happy side effect, if you know what I mean. Mm. It was kind of like, well, good, actually, you know, because I don't want to be part of all this other stuff. And, of course, you can come to identify with a so-called outsider group and still become as much a victim of fashion as anybody else just within that group, if you see what I mean. But in general, it had that appeal, uh, rebel appeal, and just that it was going against the, the norms of society. And I think that's something that just appeals to teenagers in general, I think. And no doubt there were people people running around dressed uh, in frilly shirts, uh, like Duran Duran, whatever, and they thought they were, mm. you know, uh, uh, tipping the uh, societal apple cart over <laughs> when perhaps they weren't. Okay. Would you mind then uh, maybe speaking about how that scene evolved then, you know, through the 80s into the 90s and beyond, what became to be known as thrash metal and that, that subgenre of heavy metal music. I'd be interested to hear your, your insight there and, um, you know, for, for people listening. So what was the appeal, um, both from a musical point of view and maybe a, a cultural musical offering again and where's an end to this part for somebody like me who doesn't I didn't really get into that kind of stuff but I'd be interested to know what's the where is the door there that that one would enter into that world uh personally I tended to like almost all subgenres of metal um as they were in the 80s but as the decade wore on um at one end of the spectrum the music started to become more extreme and faster and heavier and a band like Metallica, for example, now who are uh, one of the biggest bands in the world, back in the, you know in the early '80s when they got going, they were one of the bands that led this sort of trend towards a more extreme sound. Mm-hmm. And the the '80s was actually a big time for metal. It was a time when it was it attained great commercial success, and that actually happened through something at the other end of the the musical spectrum, which was. Um, what would have passed for metal bands in their early days um, becoming very commercial. I'm thinking of a band like Bon Jovi, uh, perhaps even a band like Motley Crue, a band like Van Halen. They, these became huge selling acts, at Guns N' Roses, of course, towards the end of the 80s. And that was one of the big trends. I, hi- I highlight that because it was like the, the thrash metal thing, as it came to be called, was sort of metal seen you know sort of hitting a y junction and one bit of the sound going off in one direction and the other going off in almost a polar opposite and there was everything in between of course but the thrash metal thing was one of the defining trends i think in metal for the towards the end of the 80s and for me i liked it because it did have that it was because when you get into something like that um, there's a certain type of person, and I was one of those who wanted to take things, you know, harder, faster, more extreme. The more over the mm. top, the more over the top. Some of these bands became the more into it. Some of us got, and I think one of the things that made thrash metal so effective was it sort of captured a zeitgeist, 
at the time, right. which was more extended back to the early 80s, but until the, until the end of the Cold War, until the Berlin Wall came down, this whole nuclear threat never really went away. And you'll remember living underneath this, and we, I don't know what it was like in the Irish Republic, but certainly in the north of Ireland as part of the UK, uh, we did protect and survive drills at school, uh, you know, where it's in the event of a nuclear strike, you would basically get onto your desk, mm -hmm. you know, that none of this was going to do any good, of course, but it was the idea that people were given that they could do something in this event. So that hung over the whole decade for me. And of course, it extended back beyond that, but I wasn't old enough to remember it. And this particular form of music, this extreme form of metal, thrash as it came to be called, a lot of the bands and a lot of the songs dealt with these concepts you know, which was this looming threat of, of disaster, of apocalypse. Mm. And so it, it was appealing in that sense because it, it seemed really, really relevant at that time. So I think that, that basically outlines where it came from. Uh, it, it had its peak, I would say, that particular subgenre, probably around 1990, 1991, uh, when some of the biggest bands uh, with that sound went out uh, under a big... Uh, world tour called Clash of the Titans and that kind of they were playing arenas and that kind of represented the commercial peak of it mm. and a, a lot of the original bands are still around and it certainly as a as a subgenre it certainly bounced back in the last you know 10-15 years with lots of young bands playing that particular sound but that's a whole story unto itself because pretty much every subgenre of metal that ever came and went mm. has all come back now in some form it's kind of all coexisting which is a strange thing Expand a little bit more on the the archetypes around, uh, as you're saying, these musicians and songwriters were are speaking about themes and, as I said, archetypes that are that are in the collective subconscious. Let's say, and the the territory that metal music uh, inhabited was more the sh the darker end of um, the psychological spectrum. Let's say, or the shadow work. Like, what's your thoughts on? The importance of that as, as a society that we go into the darker uh, aspects of, of our psyche and do the investigative work, let's say, or the exploratory work there, and, and then that helps to purge uh, those demons uh, rather than coming to the surface, let's say, and um, manifesting in a more violent way in, in, in actuality. I don't think that heavy metal is unique in exploring those sorts of areas, those sorts of archetypes, but it's certainly been very prominent in that respect. I mean, you had in the wake of the sort of so-called summer of love in the 60s, everything musically and contemporary, you know, popular music took a somewhat darker turn, uh, you know, after Altamont and the Manson murders and all that stuff. And um, that fed into the 70s, which was, a, you know, quite a different type of decade. I think it was a lot more sort of oppression and depression. Of course, you had Vietnam as well, which was a big mm -hmm. cultural influence. And out of that 
is where hard rock stroke heavy metal music uh, emerged. And uh, there's been a lot of debate uh, on this topic over the years. Uh, as I say, you know, me being involved in music journalism, it's just, you know, be amazed how far, um, you know, up people's backsides they can go when they're thinking about these things, you know, just over overanalyzing stuff. But the general consensus was that if you had to put uh, a marker, a, a timeline on the birth of heavy metal, then most people are happy to say it was the first Black Sabbath album in uh, 1970. And if you look at that, you see a very marked shift away from a lot of the music as it was characterized in the 60s, you know, of like mindless optimism. And you get a lot of, you get a lot of dark themes there on that particular album, whether it's from uh, supernatural stuff right through to particularly on their second album, which is called Paranoid, dealing with war, with uh, problems in society, um, you know, drugs, poverty, um, injustice, all sorts of themes like that. And I think then as as heavy metal developed during the 70s and into the 80s, uh, of course, bands would sing about all sorts of things, you know, sing about love, sing about mindless hedonism, whatever it happened to be. But there was this undercurrent of tackling these things that a lot of other you know, artists and writers didn't want to look at. And so, sometimes it was done quite superficially. Other times it was done, you know, very effectively. You know, lyrics could be borderline poetic and, you know, mm. pro- profound. Uh, and a lot of people have tended not to give metal credit for anything like that. And, you know, a lot of people who don't know really what they're talking about have tended to dismiss it as, as a whole as just a noise and the lyrics are nonsense and it's all about, you know, how how people look and everything else. And, of course, it's not. So I think it, it has performed quite an important role. Um, but, of course, it's been somewhat limited as well because it's generally not music that's had a lot of exposure in the media. As I said before, it doesn't get taken seriously by a lot of people who aren't involved in it. So to what extent that sort of music could actually really process or channel or address, you know, the dark side of the sure. human psyche collectively, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure. Okay, uh, to move that uh, interests on then for, for people who, who got into that kind of music and, and maybe like yourself, this opened up new areas of interest that you may possibly not have heard about before. As you said, a lot of the stuff is dismissed in mainstream culture and you know what's now become known as alternative history, spiritual philosophy, uh, or that general category of... Um, uh, knowledge seeking, let's say, that's available. Did did your interest in in metal open that door up, and subsequently stoked your interest in this kind of stuff, or did that happen separately? That happened separately, and it happened earlier in my life, to be honest. So when I got into when I discovered metal music, it was kind of like uh, it was just gratifying. Was, oh look, you know, the, some of these topics are cropping up, or here, here's music where some of the writers have got an interest in the supernatural or the esoteric or the hidden. Um, so that was just gratifying. But I had this weird experience. And I, it's difficult to explain when you're thinking back to your very early life because your memories are partial. They're hazy. Um, you know, your understanding of what you were feeling and thinking then is unclear. But the best way I can characterize it is that from the earliest I can remember, I felt that there was, I felt there was something wrong, and with the world, and I, I don't mean that, that it's broken or something, but I, there, I felt that there was something we weren't getting about it, we weren't, something we weren't understanding, 
And I don't remember what it would have been in terms of, you know, looking at a TV show or uh, reading a book, but I got interested in science fiction quite early on. And looking back, and I understand that that was me kind of grasping for something. So if I was watching Doctor Who, say in the 70s, it was more than just enjoying it for what it was, you know, this sort of like cartoonish romp across the galaxy battling aliens or whatever. Hmm. When the Doctor would speak about concepts about time and about space and about matter, I was actually really paying attention like this was a documentary or something. I really wanted to pursue that. So I think it goes back that far until, you know, I was sort of like six, seven, eight years old, kind of just having this, wanting to know what was behind everything. I had a feeling that it would be surprising. And I'd, I never quite understood, understood why no one else or not very many other people seemed to be interested. You know, they were kind of going to work and going to the shops and watching TV and playing football. And I was like, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Uh, you know, there's, there's much more than this. What about this concept? What about this idea? And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, that's pretty much been the story of my life. I'm going to fast forward now, unless there's anything in between um, what you just spoke about there and, and your, your decision to get into podcasting then, because that's one of the reasons why I'm speaking with you today is um, as a, a fan of, of the media you produced and the topics and themes you've spoken about, when did you decide that this was uh, something you wanted to do as, as a, you know, a producer of media? Um, um, what, what, what led you to come to that realisation that you wanted to step up and enter into that arena and speak about this kind of stuff? I probably wanted to do that for a very long time, but was you know doing other things or didn't really think seriously about it but um, I, I reached a certain point I think probably about 2009 2010 and I was doing what I'd always done which is at any given time I'd have a book on the go I'd be reading it some subject that interested me and often as not I'd find myself talking at somebody about it uh, it was meant to be a conversation but it usually ended up being a monologue by me because I really wanted to discuss the ideas in whatever book I was reading, you know, the concepts and, you know, people who knew me knew what I was interested in and they were quite open to that. But then from there it led on to like, well, look, the t technology exists for me to get the ideas out there. And of course I was aware other people were doing this. You know, I was listening to other people online uh, in the alternative media. Uh, so I thought this is really, really doable. And at that point I was actually doing a music uh, internet radio show so I was kind of geared up for it, if you know what I mean. Right. I just thought, oh, all I have to do is just stop playing records and talking about them and just do something else. Um, so that's what I did. Initially, I started the Legalized Freedom thing as a blog. And I was writing articles because that's what I was doing for a living anyway, writing. So I thought it made sense. But then I got really bored with it. And I realized that I don't like reading a lot of, a lot of material of any sort online. I just find it tiring. I'd rather read it on paper away from the computer. So I thought, well, what do I actually like? I mean, I could produce videos, but then you need to sit and watch those. So I thought what I actually like doing is hearing someone talk or hearing someone do an interview. Yeah. And you can do other things at the same time. You can move around the room. So I thought it's obvious. I just need to produce, you know, what in the old days would have been called radio uh, and do it that way. So again, I had, you know, from my, I've been doing working uh, as a journalist for for decades so uh, there was no doubt in my mind what I needed to do I knew I just needed to decide who I wanted to talk to email them record the conversation 
uh, buff it up a little bit, stick it on the website. You know, I got my IT guy to rejig the website so it wasn't a blog. It was actually a, you know, a, a podcasting website. That was all pretty quick, and so off I went. And, you know, it has been very satisfying because it's allowed me to explore topics with people, which I would have been doing anyway, but then share it with others. You know, to say, okay, look, here's a conversation I had. Rather than it being with, between two people behind closed doors, I'll stick it up on the internet. Anybody can access it. And, uh, you know, that was, that was about it, really. So I got started. And what has the reaction been from where you started to where you're at now? Does it continue to grow? Are you continuing to connect with people? Uh, is it exacerbating <laughs> where, where you're at with it? Is it still something you're interested in continuing to do? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm doing it because I have to do it, really. That's how I feel about it. You know, it's not a choice, really. I don't know. I think I'd feel really bereft if I had to stop doing it for any reason. But to answer your question, the, the feedback has generally been very good. And the numbers have grown consistently since day one. As things stand uh, right now, I get between 70,000, 80,000 people coming through every month. Um, and they're downloading or streaming at least one show. If they, it doesn't show up on the figures if they do 10 shows, but it shows the number of actual visitors you're getting. Um, so it doesn't rival the big mainstream broadcasters, but you know, again, for one person with pennies of a budget, it's, I'm pleased with the progress and the feedback I get is generally good. And as quite often happens on the internet, people who are critical tend to be borderline illiterate and they don't know how to spell or punctuate. So it's easier to, um, uh, if they don't form any sort of cogent criticism, it's easy to kind of just move on, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I, don't, I don't get very many focused critics who've actually got something to say, you know, negative about what I'm doing. Right. Um, so, and of course I've finessed it a little bit over the years and I've tried, I've tried to get better, try to be clearer in, in, in my thinking. I don't know if I'm succeeding with that, but I am trying. I think we were just speaking before we went live on this chat, and for me, legalized freedom is is right up there with with the the best of the very best in terms of content. As I was saying to you, there were certain concepts, themes, um, philosophical discourses of of understanding, and even just as you were saying, just conversations about what if and you know alternative. Um, understandings of what's going on and it for me it just opened up a huge world of, of new territory um, for, for, you know to get into and your your style is very uh, much of the uh, same kind of agenda maybe as I'm trying to do which is you know, not everyone who gets into this is, is <laughs> kind of crazy in that it's a legitimate metaphysical quest of uh, what's going on and um, there's just so much to dig into there. I, I, you know, you've got over 140 odd shows, and it's so rich. Like I'd advise anyone listening to this just to, to take time just to, to visit your site and to dig into some of the back issues or back podcasts. It's just there's something for everyone uh, in that horrible cliche. But so uh, I'll move on from that. Where do you rate podcasting in the various offerings of the multi-platform media age we live in? Does it stand out for you? Maybe not answering your question, forgive me if I've not understood it properly, but I think it's very important because of where it falls, you know, with regard to um, technology and availability and flexibility. So to sum up, you know, it allows anyone to do anything. 
And that's, you know, that can be very democratic. Anyone can do a podcast. Of course, there's other people who are doing what's effectively podcasting, but they're going out live. I mean, the, the people's internet radio type websites are, are mm -hmm. flourishing. But yeah, anybody can, and as you say, beyond the sort of topics that, that you or I might be interested in, people are doing podcasts on, you know, like I say, I used to do one on music. People might do one on, I don't know, gardening, you know, on classic cars, you name it. It's, I think it's really, really good for that. And it's allowing one individual, and there are some examples out there on the web of just one individual actually having a global effect because just synchronicity, serendipity, whatever it happens to be, they just hit the right thing at the right moment and it spreads like wildfire. So that potential's there. I mean, this conversation that you're, you and I are having, who knows how many people that will reach, but potentially it's billions. And that's, that's astounding, really, if you think about how much things have changed um, compared to, you know, pre-internet. And uh, so I, th I just think it's a great platform in general, a great way for people to communicate. And I mean, one of the things with the net is we are drowning in information. People say there's almost too much of it out there. Well, that's part of the freedom of it. You know, people are going to generate noise and static amongst the other sort of, you know, pearls and diamonds, as it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But we have to use our discernment, you know, and with a little bit of uh, common sense, uh, it does. You can wade through it and... Uh, as you say, find something, no matter what you're interested in, you'll find something out there. spaceship a little bit higher into the outer realms and ask you a question that you often ask some of your guests and one or all of the following questions first one is why are we here second one is where do we come from and the third is where are we going I'm gonna put you in the hot seat now Greg well I was saying actually to someone I was having a conversation with a few days ago that had got to the point uh, relatively recently where I was beginning to entertain the idea that asking those questions might actually be pointless. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's not to say, oh, let's just pack up and go home. But it's just sort of the limits to human understanding. And we do have this idea that there should be nothing that we cannot know given time. And... I'm not so sure about that anymore, but the best that I've come up with thus far is why are we here 
uh, we're here to evolve. Consciousness is everything and material reality, it seems to me, is an illusion uh, in the sense that it's not as real as we think it is and it in itself is within consciousness, all is within consciousness and we are little tiny subsets of it and we are here to evolve and if that sounds a bit nebulous, well, that's just the nature of all this, isn't it? You know, that's the way it is. Sure. Uh, where we come from, from consciousness, from some point, I can't, I don't even want to call it a point, I don't, I'm not sure I can name it, because mm. if we name it, then we put a human concept on it, if you see what I mean, we start to think of it in human terms, but from consciousness, and where are we going? We're on a path of evolution of consciousness, and where that is going is not yet clear, and it may, is unlikely to be clear to us, because we're not nearly as central and important as we think we are. So there you go. At okay, least I, tr yeah. I try to answer it. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you. Um, just moving on from that, th th those themes. Then you know, you in, on on your podcast, you you repeatedly um, reach out to people and continue to speak to people who grapple with with those three questions and and much more. Who out of, out of both the people you've spoken to and also just people in general in in any form of media? Uh, inspire you and the work you do? Well, there, there's so many really um, over the years that have been important and I'm not sure I think about them in those terms about individuals and whether going back to people even though I do find myself continually going back to certain people. What I would say in answer, if, if people are interested, have a look at the website, see who I've talked to because some of those people are people I've just stumbled upon and, uh, or some of the people have approached me and said I'd like to come on and there's amongst that there's a certain number of people that particularly people I've had on more than once that are clearly uh, I've got information that's of great interest to me so uh, a sample of people who are really rate as thinkers uh, can be found peppered amongst um, all those guests all of whom I've got the, you know their own quality information to bring to the table and uh, I said we used the expression earlier on something for everyone I think no matter who you are you'll find somebody on there that uh, whose information will resonate with you very much so to flip that over then in your journey of exploring and researching were there any areas that you got into that proved to be a dead end and that you ended up rejecting that for another path yeah, I think there was certainly a time for a long time when I probably would have called myself an atheist um, without particularly considering it a great deal. It was more not so much embracing everything that comes under the atheist banner. It was more rejecting religion, uh, which I did at an early age. Well, it never made any sense, uh, formal, you know, organized religion and the, uh, how shallow everything was and how purely ceremonial it all was. So I rejected that. And I think by default ended up in an atheist camp. Um, but I don't know, certainly since I started doing the broadcast, I'm not sure if I've gone down any blind alleys personally. Um, it's all been interesting. Um, and I don't subscribe 100% to everything that every guest has to say. I mean, if I did that, I'd be a very confused individual, <laughs> you know, about holding multiple different positions at once. But, but yeah, I mean, and I think at some <clears throat> point, I'm not quite sure when it happened, but probably... 
within the last decade, I stopped using the word atheist because it seemed to me to be an untenable position. Uh, again, referring to what I said earlier about in terms of what we can know. I mean, even Richard Dawkins says that he's, you know, 90% atheist or whatever, or 99%. He's leaving some little chink in his armor, uh, which is conceding that there are things that we do not know and cannot know. Uh, so for me, once you are 99% atheist, well, then by definition, you can't say that you're, you, you know anything. It then becomes about belief. You say, as an atheist, I believe there is no God or whatever. Um, so that, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a blind alley, but because it was right. something, it was something that worked for a long time. You know, I was happy to sort of think in those terms. And I can listen to uh, atheists set out their position with regards to religion and agree with a lot of it. You know, it's not a problem. I, I do understand where that impulse comes from. It's another extreme impulse, rejecting something that at the very least um, is causing problems in the world and has done for a long time. And at worst, it is threatening our fundamental survival. So I, I do get it. It's just that it's not something, uh, uh, the, the older I get, the less likely I am to find myself out on the fringes somewhere uh, with a 100% position on anything. And for some people, they, they, they find that to be smacking of a lack of uh, rigor or discipline. You know, it's like, come on, what do you actually think? But for me, staying flexible and sort of uh, moving around in the sort of ocean of ideas, uh, you know, definitely works better. Uh, but it's, again, not everyone can handle it because some people just need to be able to have a fixed view of the world and the universe and their place in it uh, so they can sleep at night. You know, they're, they're not happy with the idea that they don't know what the hell's going on. Whereas I, I find it to be, you know, like a, a roller coaster ride. You know, it's like quite exciting not knowing. What's your current relationship with mainstream culture with regards to what's on television, what's on the radio, what's in the newspapers? Do you engage with that or do you completely just bypass that and, and seek out your own media? pretty much bypass it. I mean, there's not, it's much the same as it's always been, you know, which is generally very superficial. And, and as far as the, uh, the, you know, media reporting goes of news and what have you, it's, you know, extremely partial and misleading. So I, I keep up to that stuff to an extent because I find with some of the work that I do that I, I want to be informed with what the mainstream are saying. You know, I want to know what their what their latest untenable position is. You know, mm -hmm. uh, um, but again, it doesn't it doesn't bother me. Um, some people turn off that stuff because it really disturbs them, and they find themselves throwing shoes at the TV, that type of thing. Right. You know, I can just take it or leave it. As far as popular culture goes, in terms of television, you know, comedy and drama and all the stuff that everyone sits down to watch of an evening, I, I can. I've stopped looking, but for the longest time, there was almost nothing that I could could hold my attention for more than sixty seconds. You know, I'll put on whatever it would happen to be, and some you know people are raving, "Oh, this is this hot new show out of the states," and you're just like, "What?" Well, you know, what? no, you just want to go and do something else. So it's it doesn't hold my attention at all. I think a lot of it, um, if people were honest, it's not really fulfilling a, a genuine need that they have. Um, but it's a, a way of, it's a distraction, again, like it's always been, isn't it? You know, something to do with your time so you don't have to, so you don't have to think. 
And to use that the, the phrase, how do you switch off? You know, that the, is there anything like uh, with regards to you know movies or TV shows that I know you just said that you that you don't really uh, watch them, but is there anything in, in you know the likes of Mad Men, Game of Thrones, those kind of you know the box set boys who 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 go on about um, you know the the latest thing from HBO or or. Uh, Showtime, whatever. Have, have any of those shows kind of resonate with you at all, or is it? Is I've, I've not just, watched any of no. them. I mean, I know you just gave two examples there, but I, I know the sort of thing you mean. Mm. The sort of things that, um, if you listen to people talking about them, you'll get the impression that oh, there's something going on here. You know, it's quite serious programming. Mm. Uh, you know, there's interesting ideas in there. There may be. I, I just don't know. But yeah, I've got, I've got a bunch of DVDs most of which are getting quite old now and it's not that it's not that every tv show or every movie ever made has been shallow garbage it's not the case at all there's been some really thoughtful stuff over the decades um it's just that the bulk of it is uh to reuse that phrase from father ted uh, chewing gum for the eyes right i'm going to start wrapping up the conversation greg uh, i'd like to just ask you or speak to you a little bit about your daily practices as a writer or podcaster and how you go about constructing the media you you produce and the the methods and rituals and processes that you undertake in your day-to-day -day work i'd be interested to hear how you go about um you know uh, doing your job as, a, as an artist and writer Ah, that's well, sort of a tricky one. Okay. The, thing that's, the thing that springs to mind in terms of getting the work done is basically to do the work, you know, to put one foot in front of the other. I mean, over the years I've had uh, younger people say to me, sort of, oh, you know, I'd like to be a journalist or I'd like to be a writer, what do I do? And I understand where they're coming from, but the basic answer is if you want to be a writer, then write. You know, and this is not some great insight. This is, you know, writers have been saying this for for decades and when it comes to anything else you're doing writing a song recording a bit of music recording a podcast um it's just you know do something every day basically put one foot in front of the other uh and don't stop it's amazing what you can get done so i'm not sure if i've got any particular use the word rituals or or other processes but that's what springs to mind is just chipping away at it and don't wait for orders from headquarters you know you don't need anyone's permission to do this to be creative yeah, I'm inclined to agree, and uh, unfortunately, there's a Nike have have co-opted the phrase "just do it," and it's become kind of a, a bit of a corporate mantra. But for uh, if you if you remove the association with Nike, I think it's a great motivation to just, as you said, put one foot one foot in front of the other, and whatever it is you're, you're doing—music, podcasting, blogging, drawing—you uh, can't beat actually doing the work and just getting on with it and you know you, all of the good stuff occurs uh, when you're when you're in the zone when you're just actively doing what it is and invariably mistakes uh, lead to uh, the most um, the, the best stuff and you, you never get to the point where you can make a mistake unless you're actually doing the work so, yeah exactly exactly um, and I'm someone who does suffer from procrastination despite what I've just said and also, I sometimes get the most pointless, inexplicable sense of doom about doing some of the things that I'm doing beforehand, you know, just mm. to the point where I'll 
part of me almost wants to do anything to avoid it. Uh, but then when it's done, you know, like I'm really, really pleased. And that from that thought comes the idea that it isn't necessarily always going to be easy. You know, there's nothing that says this has to be easy. Mm. But, you know, the, as they, it's an old cliche, but they say about, you know, the best things in life rarely are, you know. And so expending effort, however um, forbidding it seems at first, is always better than kind of sitting around, you know, waiting for, uh, you know, the starting gun to yeah. go off. And then as Pink Floyd sang, you know, suddenly realizing that your life's over. Mm, nice. So, Greg, I'm just going to leave it there for the moment. Um, would you like to take this opportunity to promote your website and um, let, let the listeners know where they can find you and, and your podcasts? Well, they can find it, Jim, at legalizefreedom.com. That's legalize-freedom.com. You can spell legalize with an S or a Z, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, doesn't matter. And people will find there all the audio interviews where they can stream or they can download them and put them on their device and travel around with whatever they like. They'll also find links to all the relevant books and DVDs by you know the authors and artists that I've had on. And yeah, just everything's in that one space. Uh, for now, Greg, thanks very much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. No problem, Jim. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. <laughs>